Welcome to the Retail Insider video series. I'm your host, Craig Patterson, and we're joined here with a special guest, Mark Cohen. Welcome back. He's the Director of Retail Studies at Columbia University in New York City and was the CEO of Sears Canada from 2001 and 2004. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me back. Let's talk a little bit about department stores. So we're going to take a global view. We can take a bit of a local view as well. Department stores were a bit of a local thing at one time in our history here in North America, but things have certainly changed. Um, let's talk a little bit of a general discussion here around department stores, uh, how they got started and, uh, uh, you know, what's a good department store. And we can talk about where we're seeing some lacking, uh, particularly here in North America as well. Well, as you know, the department store is a 20th century artifact. Uh, department stores emerged throughout North America um, in the early part of the century. Uh, they were uh, typically based downtown. They were viewed as downtown emporiums. They were grandiose in style. Um, they were a, um, a new version of what had been, um, of where merchandise had been sold on push carts, traveling salesmen, uh, local dry goods stores in small communities. And so they emerged and they were typically founded by uh, families. They were private. Um, they, they were famous for carrying everything you might want or need. Um, prior to their emergence, uh, you more or less had to shop via a catalog the original Sears Roebuck Montgomery Ward catalog, for example, uh, which were hundreds and hundreds of pages of things uh, that you could select from. And then, of course, the department store made those things, much of that merchandise available in a, uh, an, a centrally located place. And they thrived. And they were run by the founding families. And the founding families grew uh, extremely prosperous a very profitable business. And then, of course, in the late 50s, actually the early 60s, the uh, Great American Shopping Mall, I say American because it was American and Canadian, the North American Shopping Mall emerged as a place. Um, it, it principally was driven by the um, investment in the U.S. interstate highway system, and there was a Canadian version of that, that made... Um, uh, land available for newly emergent World War II veterans to begin to form families and move out of uh, uh, cities into newly formed suburbs. Uh, they also enabled uh, young people to move out of rural communities into newly formed suburbs. And along those highways and byways, uh, shopping malls were created. Uh, it was a, this was a new thing. Uh, it was fueled by um, uh, customers and very, very inexpensive land and all sorts of subsidies uh, provided by uh, suburban communities to uh, incentivize uh, construction. They also provided uh, employment for these newly minted families uh, and entertainment for young people from these families. Uh, the department stores became the anchors of these developments. They were often operating in spaces that were uh, substantially subsidized by the developer who would either build the store, provide the store with enormous uh, economic support, um, do free rent deals, 
things of that sort. In the case of the United States, Sears Roebuck was one of the original landowners uh, through a subsidiary called Homart, which had staked a claim more or less as the prospectors in the 1800s had staked claims for gold and silver in both the US and Canada um, alongside these highways. And, uh, and so the department stores formed the anchor tenants of these malls, the concourses between the central hub of the mall, which became the food court, if you will. Uh, uh, the concourses were filled with a new retail phenomenon, the specialty store. Uh, these stores uh, emerged, um, often incentivized by developers with uh, build-out allowances and uh, attractive rent deals. And so the department store now had some competition, but they also had this enormous uh, influx of customers. And so for a period of time, everybody did well. The developer did well. The anchors boomed, uh, although the anchors in most cases moved the principal activity of their stores from their downtown emporium into these new malls. The downtown business suffered. Downtown business, not only in department stores, but the mom and pops who had occupied the downtown business districts. If they didn't move out to the mall where the customer was now shopping, they basically uh, dried up on the vine. And so this mall phenomenon hollowed out downtown retailing in hundreds and hundreds of U.S. and Canadian cities. Uh, didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of two, three decades. But it became increasingly apparent that customers loved shopping, working, and uh, basically hanging out at the mall. Uh, of course, success brings competition. So that first mall at the bottom of exit ramp number one, uh, on the north side of the highway, um, brought a competitor about a mile downstream on the other side of the highway at the bottom of a different exit ramp. And they both did well. And then a third one, of course, arrived on the scene. This is while the suburban communities throughout the US and Canada were growing in leaps and bounds population. And so everybody was happy. Uh, land remained relatively inexpensive and uh, tax revenues boomed. Um, this was a happy thing for all involved into the 70s. And of course, the third, the fourth, the fifth mall began to cannibalize the original malls. And each new mall became a brighter, shinier, and larger penny with more anchor spaces, more specialty tenants, more available parking. Um, there was a view that if we build it, they will come, and that worked for a lot of years, and then it stopped working quite as well, but it was still viable. Uh, and then, of course, uh, here comes e-commerce. And suddenly, the customer who was tethered to a local mall, uh, typically within a seven-mile radius of their home, uh, because that was the benchmark that, that was typically uh, in place throughout North America, uh, she was tethered, and now she was no longer tethered. She didn't have to put up with her crappy Macy's or crappy Bay or whoever I want to cast aspersions on. She now had choices, and she loved the fact that she had choices. She could shop, browse, transact from the comfort of her home in any way in which she saw fit. 
including shopping in the mall if she chose to. Well, the internet emerged uh, as we know it with a, an upstart called Jeff Bezos in Seattle selling books and DVDs from his garage. And a lot of the uh, then geniuses running these department stores took the view, and I was in the room with some of them, that this internet thing was just a fad. It would never amount to anything. After all, who would give someone their credit card number via an internet connection? And um, I was senior enough to get away with pointing out that that was a stupid view because every time you go to a restaurant, you give someone access to your credit card. What's the difference? Is there a difference? Uh, the rest is history. Bezos uh, started a migration path from brick and mortar into e-commerce and the business has been booming ever since. Um, it was growing in double digits right up until the onset of COVID when it became turbocharged. While all this was going on, the decline in productivity of the shopping mall became increasingly uh, problematic because um, there's only so much economic activity in any community. And uh, when too much square footage is produced, um, you get transfer sales, you get uh, uh, a dilution in, in impact invariably. And then of course, between these malls, there was the rise of the strip center power center. After all, you had to fill in the space off ramp between the malls. And so retailing continued to grow virtually exponentially for many, many years. And the department store, which had been in the catbird seat, having been <clears throat> the purveyor of almost all things that customers would wanna buy, now found itself in tremendous competition between specialty stores and big box uh, players. Um, they were not the only game in town. And uh, they didn't behave in many cases wisely in the face of that competition. They in fact ignored it for many years in many, in many of these stores as if to uh, uh, make believe that this was an illusory thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that would go away, didn't go away. Um, the department store, which was this enormously profitable enterprise became increasingly problematic in the manner in which it was doing business. It, in many cases, these companies began to merge, to consolidate. They, went, they began, began to go public. They now had shareholders who demanded performance. Uh, they started to cut corners. The wonderful customer service that they had proudly heralded as their uh, legacy became problematic. The wonderfully appointed stores uh, became, in many cases, shop-worn and shabby. Um, the ability for many of these department stores to provide um, a really orderly flow of inventory to their store shelves became problematic. Uh, so all the customer needed was an alternative, and they sought it with a vengeance. And of course, there were all sorts of financial shenanigans that went on over several decades as these public companies um, did short-sighted things to prop up their uh, share price and to keep their shareholder happy. Um, and they also cut the assortments that they carried. 
So for example, when I was the CEO of Lazarus in the Midwest, um, this is circa mid nineties. Uh, we were a traditional full line department store. We even carried things like appliances. We had in the past carried hardware, but had ceded that to a Sears Roebuck, but we were a full line department store. And then of course the enlightened and foolish management, uh, I say enlightened in quotes, decided that apparel and accessories was really the only game in town because of the margins that that business provided and looked askance at appliances, consumer electronics, businesses which carried with them lower margins. And um, everyone feasted on the boom in apparel and accessories. But of course, like all things, most categories exhibit a cycle of boom bust. And now, uh, years later, the department stores that still remain in business, who only have, for the most part, apparel and accessories to sell, uh, are trying hard to keep the lights on. And these boxes require constant investment, not episodic investment. And so when the carpet wears out, you replace it or you look like a place customers don't really want to go. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of consolidation. This is a phenomenon not, not uh, particular to retail. The airline industry has consolidated. The consumer electronics business has consolidated. Mo most retail, most consumer-facing businesses, and now most industrial businesses, have gone through cycles of consolidation as new technology and new marketplaces emerge. The internet is here to stay. Um, the customer's affection for e-commerce does vary by category, but what we've seen is there's virtually no category that's uh, immune from intrusion or disruption via the internet. And most department stores just don't have any mojo left. They don't have what made them famous, which was wonderfully crafted assortments of really uh, wonderful merchandise with a branded or private label, very well attuned to customers' preferences and needs in a, in a uh, very, very inviting setting of customer service and presentation, surrounded by all sorts of ancillary uh, and appealing activities um, that play to the holidays. Um, they also provided credit because post-World War II, very few customers, only the most wealthy, had possession of a credit card. There were very few credit cards. Diners Club, for example, was one of the first. Uh, or they did business with uh, customers of some consequence via house accounts. So you would buy things from a store and your transaction would be recorded and you'd receive a bill at the end of the month, which you would be expected to pay. Well, the department stores, uh, in this case, this was Sears Roebuck, in the US, which was one of the first. And I guess when Simpson Sears joined forces in Canada, they, they hopped on the bandwagon. They provided a store card and made it available to newly formed families who were trying to outfit their homes with furniture and appliances and, and put clothes on their kids and didn't have any uh, available cash to speak of uh, because they were just starting out. And so the department stores had both the goods the convenience, the service, and the enabler, which was credit. So it was all good. And then it became less good. 
And now it's become, unfortunately, in most cases, no good. Um, the department stores always were promotional, but 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 carefully so. And uh, as they desperately tried to keep the lights on, they became, became increasingly promotional to the point where they weren't selling anything at regular price. The regular price viability of their assortments had disappeared. Uh, pretty much that's the case today. And um, the, the devotion to product sort of went by the boards. And, and now with increasingly powerful brands choosing to go vertical, which, sell, which is to say sell their products themselves through their own stores and their own internet sites, uh, the department stores, which used to have exclusive possession of those brands, if you wanted to buy a particular brand, you typically had to go to the department store to do it. That's gone by the boards. The opportunity to prop up assortments via private label was always there. And some stores took advantage of that. Uh, I'll go back to Sears. It was certainly the Kenmore appliance business. Kenmore was 40, appliances at Sears Canada was 40% of Canadian appliance purchases. And the biggest share of that was Kenmore. And craftsmen in hardware and, and uh, outdoor power products had a similar uh, tremendous share in the marketplace. Well, that mastery required enormous investment in product development, devotion to excellence, and that disappeared, pretty much gone. So what do the department stores stand for? You know, what, what, what raison d'etre do they have with which to move into the 21st century and be prosperous? And at the end of the day, sadly, most just don't. Now, I haven't been to Canada in a while, so I'm going to be careful because someone would say, hey, what do you know? You haven't been there a long time. I've heard stories about the Bay. The Bay was not in great shape when I was there. The Bay was not a wonderful place to shop, but still did business. Sears Canada took a lot of share away from them while I was there, happily so. Um, Eaton's, of course, is an artifact that went by the boards when they finally threw the towel in and Sears Canada essentially bought seven of their properties. Uh, in the U.S., Macy's struggles with a strategy they call Polaris, which to me makes no sense, which is largely uh, investing in outlet centers installed in their stores, much like what I'm told the Bay is going to do when they recreate Zellers, uh, if they actually go through with that. Um, hey, it's always about the merchandise. So if you stand for the cheapest price, you become a down market um, emporium. The department stores used to have basement stores, which satisfied that very value conscious customer. Then they gave that up because they didn't think they needed it. Now they're getting back into that seemingly with a vengeance. Can they recover? Well, it requires inspired leadership, talent, and capital. Uh, there's a lot of money around. There's not a lot of talent. There's a lot of nascent talent because in any organization filled with young people, you have talented people, but there's very little, if any, inspired leadership. 
the leadership that I have had contact with is large, the leadership suites are po largely populated by survivors who've managed to acquire their seats through efforts that don't suggest they are interested or capable in mounting a future strategy. Can we talk a bit about uh, Lazarus, Lazarus when you were there? I, I'd be curious to know more because Lazarus was headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. His store was over a million square feet. Uh, now it's, uh, well, I don't think it's open, but Macy's uh, really kind of just took all the names of these local department stores. That removed the localization from, from the whole process that made department stores special in the United States and in Canada, I suppose, as well. Well, Lazarus was originally uh, headquartered in Columbus. Lazarus was founded by uh, the Lazarus family, which were one of the original department store families. And that family was part of the foundation of Federated Department Stores, Federated, of course, having bought Macy's, and now all their remaining stores are titled Macy's. Uh, Lazarus was consolidated just before I got to Lazarus as president and CEO. Lazarus had been consolidated from Columbus down into Cincinnati with a sister division of Federated called Chilitos. So Chilitos became Lazarus, now based in Cincinnati. Reich's, another Federated sister store based in Dayton, was consolidated into the newly formed Lazarus. And then there were a handful of other stores, uh, Herpelsheimers and Blocks, Blocks in Indianapolis, Herpelsheimers in, in uh, Michigan. And so the Lazarus division was a... Um, a uh, hastily constructed uh, attempt to uh, provide more scale and to provide more performance. Uh, I joined, uh, Lazarus was a running 10th and a seventh horse in a seven horse race among the seven divisions of Federated. It was a mess, okay, now how did I get to Lazarus? Well, I had rejoined Federated, having started my career there at Abraham and Strauss years and years earlier, uh, by joining Goldsmiths, a Federated division based in Memphis, small division, very profitable. And I hadn't even opened the latches on my suitcase when a Canadian named Robert Compow, Compo surfaced. Uh, he had taken over Allied Stores, a department store group in the U.S., uh, in a semi-hostile takeover, and then had turned around and done the same thing with Federated. So I arrived in Memphis, and uh, Bob arrived in Cincinnati, and um, Bob immediately merged the Memphis operation called Goldsmiths into the Riches operation, Federated uh, stores in, in Atlanta. And I was out of a job, and he refused to pay my contract, and, and demanded that I sort of hang out. And a month or two later, to make a very long story short, I wound up in Cincinnati as president, then became CEO. Um, uh, Compo was uh, brilliant at uh, getting the banks into supporting a series of hostile takeovers in which he put virtually none of his own money in. And uh, federated, uh, Peter tottered on bankruptcy for a couple of years and then eventually had to go into bankruptcy because Compo Corp was a bankrupt company. Um, while Federated was trying to get out of 11, chapter 11, uh, there was a whole host of efforts to improve its performance, largely by exiting businesses that were less profitable than other businesses. And, and folks like me at the time were 
sort of kicking and screaming over this because many of us envisioned in the midterm to longer term that these businesses we were exiting would be businesses we would rue the day we had walked away from. And so the department store used to be a place to shop for almost everything you can think of. And now it was only uh, uh, a house built on current fashion and current fashion appeal, which is wonderful when the cycle is in your favor and not so wonderful when it turns the other way. So, so you know, it's a genre that has seen its day. Will it completely disappear? Well, it's almost completely disappeared. Uh, these boxes don't get uh, repopulated very easily. You know, uh, you could argue that the department store decline took down the mall in many locations in North America, or was it the mall that took down the department store? Chicken or egg, doesn't really matter. Uh, they've both prospered during the good times and they're both struggling today, except for the, for, the, for the super regional malls that still command the customer's attention. Um, I think the struggle is to come up with brilliant assortments that are suitably differentiated, hand in glove with an omni-channel e-commerce strategy that the customer finds would find appealing. And that's easy to say, not easy to do, but it's doable. Uh, it's not a fast uh, fix strategy. It requires years of formulation and gestation. Uh, but uh, for those with the wherewithal and the skill uh, and the financial uh, backing, it's possible. But We'll have to wait and see. In Europe, where the great American or great North American shopping mall has never emerged particularly because there isn't the land available and the population is still closely centered around urban centers. You know, Europe doesn't have the kind of suburban development that we've seen here in North America. Um, downtown retail is still viable in many downtowns. And some of the uh, old style department stores um, have prospered, although as they did try to venture off into malls where malls were created, they've struggled. So, for example, um, Harrods is, you know, a beacon of light. They've never been successful outside of Knightsbridge, but they pulled their horns back in and the Knightsbridge store is, you know, a magnet for both residents and tourists and you know has survived brexit and will survive this current period of uh stagflation inflation and will continue to be a uh, an iconic emporium um, what makes what, other, what makes these store these stores like harrods selfridges galleries lafayette what makes them amazing because people are still going to these places they're tourist attractions uh, and, and quite exciting Let's talk, can we talk about that a little bit? Uh, because these are actually not bad stores compared to what we have in North America. Well, they're, they're, they're physically attractive spaces uh, as opposed to uh, same old, same old rectangular boxes that have seen better days. Uh, they have lots of architectural appeal. They are um, filled with merchandise. Customers want to touch, feel, and in many cases, purchase. They've done it through um, 
uh, affiliation with brands that they have some element of exclusivity with. They've done it by leasing spaces to brands, acting as brands landlords, which is a European and Asian model that's never really taken hold here. They uh, typically provide uh, far better customer service. So the customer not only is entering a place that's attractive and appealing, that's filled with goods they want to consider, but the customer service that they're exposed to is uh, appealing as opposed to diffident or non-existent. And so they, 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 you know, they thrive or fail based on their delivery of um, their execution ability. Um, and some have thrived and some have faltered and resurged. Uh, Gallery Lafayette was hot as a pistol years ago, and then they moved to New York and they failed miserably, and then they started to fall apart in France, and now they've resurged. Um, Saint-Martin, taken over by a billionaire, completely redone, uh, sort of a uh, ninth wonder of the world in some respects, if you're into interior architecture. Um, Selfridges, uh, which was a sleepy, dumpy store, put itself on the map through the efforts of a, a CEO who is now running a department store uh, chain in Italy, who did a brilliant job of creating wonderfully exciting, differentiated assortments in a setting that was very attractive. Now, interesting, self interestingly, Selfridges tried to recreate that magic by opening up a, a store in Birmingham, which failed or which was certainly less successful because they couldn't quite translate all of that wonderment to a smaller market, a smaller box, which is the enigma that department stores face. If you're going to be doing business across a portfolio of locations, the magic has to spread across your entire portfolio, as opposed to your downtown store looks great and your branches don't. Um, what, what can I say? It's, it's amazing that through thick and thin pandemic, economic disruption, customers don't disappear. And customers worldwide have an affinity for new and exciting products in a setting they find attractive, convenient. Uh, and where the department stores used to be the only game in town, they certainly aren't any longer. And for them to continue to prevail or survive, they have to recreate that magic. And it's just not happening. Not happening, certainly in the US. Um, and I suspect it's not happening in Canada either. No, I, I wouldn't say so generally. I mean, we have La Maison Simons, which is more of a fashion retailer with really cool architecture, um, interesting product, most of which is their own private label. Uh, it's almost like a large, I don't want to say H&M or Zara, but it's very, very private. Now, the good examples that you used for department stores, they're obviously a bit more upscale uh, with the concessions that are in there. Selfridges has Gucci, Chanel, Prada. Uh, we're seeing that across the European cities and also even in Asia, where they've got some really tremendous department stores. Um, now, in North America here, you mentioned we don't have the same inspired leadership in terms of creating a, a compelling environment that's a place a person must go to that's entertainment-based um any idea why we don't really in north america i can't think of a department store that would be like selfridges here outside of perhaps mexico city if you can include that being north america and i'm speaking to el palacio diego well you know the original department store model was created by uh individuals at the top of families that owned the business that had the vision 
to create and expand their enterprise. And they, and they had the wherewithal and they didn't need to seek shareholder approval to do it. They, 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 they pounded a stake in the ground and said, this is where we want to be and this is what we want to represent. And they delivered against that. Um, as these businesses have all become part of conglomerates, uh, they've lost that individuality. They, they don't have people at the top of the business who have that uh, experience, that talent, that skill, and that support. And uh, in the case of Selfridges, uh, it was owned then by the Weston family who greenlighted this CEO's uh, uh, strategy of reinvention and he delivered, uh, but the Westons were acting as if they were the founders of the business. They weren't, but they were acting as if they were the original founder of the business. Um, and so, you know, it's tough to make an economic case for a multi-year reinvention that's gonna cost a lot of money up front, not show results for two to five years downstream. Uh, you can do it if your uh, uh, name is on the door. You can do it if you're working for the people whose names are on the door, who owns the business, who own the business and share that vision. Uh, you almost can't do it under any circumstances without that kind of underlying support. And then, of course, the, the, the talent component of merchandising generally speaking, has disappeared. That's not that there aren't smart, capable people available. It's that they don't have the training, they don't have the backing, and they don't have the support. Um, and, and so that devotion to product, to creating special assortments that a customer will notice and seek out, that effort has largely, and I say this unhappily, disappeared. So today's buyer is making a deal based on lowest price, most flexibility, rather than on most apparent greatest features and benefits on behalf of the customer. Uh, and it's a shame, you know, it's a, it's a shame. I don't want to, I don't want to sound too sentimental, but the, the art of creating assortments is the art of it all, and it has disappeared from the department store industry. I wonder if an international chain would ever look at coming into North America and uh, shaking things up a bit with the strategy, at least there, that works with a few stores, probably not that many uh, major cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, maybe Toronto and Vancouver. Well, um Retailers who cross the national border, I think I've spoken about this in the past, typically fail because they are unable to fully uh, understand all of the nuance that they have to overcome. Um, when Gallery Lafayette came to New York, they failed. They certainly had a perfect location, 57th Street, more or less, where Trump Tower is now and where Tiffany is based. Um, uh, Prontom, I think is moving to a space in uh, the financial district in Manhattan down near Wall Street. Having been reinvigorated in France, my guess is this isn't gonna be happiness. Uh, Saks Fifth Avenue had a, had a, a, a series of stores in the financial district that failed. Saks moving to Canada has 
essentially failed. Um, it's very expensive to transplant a sizable business across a border. And the answer to your question is, are there deep-pocketed enough owners, investors, willing to take that kind of risk? And the answer is, I don't think so. Not likely. Not likely. Even in the face of very, very uh, inexpensive real estate, vacant real estate, real estate that's really gone begging. Um, the customer has never been thwarted. She continues to shop increasingly anywhere and everywhere she wants. Her needs are being serviced. And so by, by moving a department store emporium into a new location, what is it that really uh, engenders uh, loyalty and support other than the wonderment on a one-time basis of a, uh, a new shiny penny on the block, you know? So I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. Now, the, 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 there have been uh, attempts by Asian enterprise to move into North America in a big way. The most notable that I can think of is um, uh, Uniglo. So Uniglo is essentially owned by a, um, a Japanese-based, uh, um, extraordinarily wealthy individual. Uh, Fast Retailing is the name of the company, and they've been extraordinarily successful in Asia. And when they came to uh, the U.S., they basically said, we're going to open hundreds of stores in North America. And I think at this point, 10, 15 years later, they've got maybe 40 or 50 stores. And they're certainly not doing anything like the business they expected they would be able to do. Why? Because fashion, fit, finish, pricing customer operations, logistics are all different here than they are in Asia. They're different between the US and Canada. And it's very difficult to uh, get that right at the outset or make sense of that at the outset. Uh, Zara, when they first moved into the US years ago, uh, opened, a, a, I don't know, 30 or so stores. Zara being a brilliant company with enormous success uh, behind them, failed. They failed because though they had scoped out what they felt were consumer preferences, they didn't get the logistics nuance right. They closed all their stores. They went back to the drawing board. They then reopened, and now they're doing brilliantly well. But, but it took probably seven or eight years of disruption for them to finally figure that out. On a larger scale, I, I don't think I don't think the department stores have the uh, have the chops now. Um, Primark was going to open an enormous network of stores. Uh, they're a low priced budget value operation. Uh, I think they've got six in the U.S. They were going to have an entire coast to coast network. Whether they throw the towel in and they finally figure out how to be competitive and successful remains to be seen. I don't know if there are any Primarchs in Canada, but I know their intention was to move into North America. We so, don't have any you know, here in Canada. We don't have any Primarchs in Canada yet, but uh, one yeah. just opened in uh, Buffalo, New York, which isn't too far from me. I'm not planning on going there right now, but that's as close as we're getting right now. And you're right, there aren't that many of them in the United States, probably because it's going to be, ex the stuff there is really cheap and it, it's expensive to do you know, business here. Well, you've, you've got to sell a lot of merchandise. Now, in the case of Uniglo, which is a moderate price house, 
their flagship on Fifth Avenue uh, uh, was literally one of the most expensive real estate deals ever done. And they had to do well over $100 million in volume just to break even, which is something the founder was willing to take on because it was a flagship. It was the beachhead. But that's a hell of a challenge to have to do 100 plus million dollars just to be able to pay the rent without losing money. <laughs> you know, um, so so I think the the future is really in the hands of businesses that emerge through the Internet and maybe migrate to brick and mortar on a selective basis. Businesses that are um, in possession of assortments that are uh, customized or differentiated so well that a customer will seek out the business, both online and uh, in, in a physical setting. And the one that comes to mind is Apple. So you can buy Apple products in a variety of retailers, but not the full tilt assortment. If you want the full tilt assortment, you have to go to an Apple store or apple.com. And it is a simple example and they don't carry a lot of different things, but they carry an assortment that commands attention and loyalty and support. Um, there's an opportunity for private label businesses to emerge and become powerhouses, but it requires talent, leadership, and investment and sticking power because uh, you, you can't create a private label today and expect it to be successful tomorrow. Customers are not going to suddenly discover you and embrace you unless you're selling something that is truly unavailable, which is almost never the case. So um, the last thing I'll say, I mean, the last thing I'll say I've been going on and on is that my observation of my own career and life would suggest that success v. failure is virtually always a component of leadership effective versus ineffective. Uh, all of the successful enterprises that I've worked for with, observed up close, have been led by very effective leaders. And those that have failed have been run by far less effective. And I could get pejorative and call some of the people I've had associations with uh, village idiots, if you will, who have made terrible mistakes or been unable or unwilling to make uh, creative and productive decisions. Um, every organization I've ever been involved with, associated with, or had any up-close association with have filled, been filled with talented people, but their leadership is the issue at hand. And um, hey, you know, if someone were to say to me, I've got uh, a bucket full of cash and I want to get into retail, should I open a department store or a specialty store or an online version of such? I would say, don't even think about a department store. Uh, come up with an idea, launch it online, see how it plays in the eyes and hearts, wallets of customers, and then proceed cautiously. And be aware of the fact that almost anything and everything you might choose to put in your assortments as your foundation uh, is subject to enormous competition from the get-go. So you've got to create something that's appealing and then be able to defend it. 
And then of course, fill in all of the blanks and dots necessary to make a business profitable. That sounds like it would be challenging. And it sounds like something like you said that someone probably involved with like a family ownership would make more sense if it's shareholder driven, they're going to want those returns and they're not going to get them right away at the very least. It's, it is what it is. It is what it is. Now, the good news is, as I said before, there's no shortage of customers anywhere in the world you look. The good news is the price of entry has never been more uh, uh, economical. You know, not too many years ago, you had to open a store with a long-term lease and make a substantial financial commitment betting on the come that you could uh, fulfill your obligation. And you had to fill your store's shelves with merchandise. Uh, today, you can open a website. Uh, you can develop a website for you know almost nothing. You can um, uh, have a third-party provider act as your facilitator uh, by sharing margin, but not requiring you to lay out uh, enormous upfront expense by way of facilities, equipment, and employment. You can read the, the crowd based on customer reaction and act accordingly. Uh, without putting yourself at risk by filling a store with merchandise, which may or may not be uh, saleable. So the price of entry has never been more appealing, the ease of entry. Uh, and I encourage entrepreneurially um, uh, oriented folks, lots of my students these days, uh, to, to put their, you know, get into the water up to your knees and see how it feels. Don't jump into the deep end. You don't have to uh, read and watch closely. And uh, some of the businesses that I've had some exposure to have been, become brilliantly successful because of following just that kind of pathway. So I'll, I'll, I have no skin in this game, but I'll pitch something. So I had a couple of students some years ago, not that many years ago at Columbia, who had uh, come from private equity and investment banking and had decided in business school, having met that they didn't want to go back to where they had come from. They wanted to start a business of their own. These are two guys. And uh, shortly before they graduated, they, they parked themselves in my office and announced that they wanted to open a men's boot business. And I said, really? And they said, no, no, don't blow us off. We've done our homework in MBA speak. It was white space that they had investigated. They believed there was a marketplace for very high quality men's boots, casual, uh, rugged men's boots at far more affordable prices than what were available in the market then. So I said, okay, I'll take at face value that you have done your homework and there's a market for this product. Uh, they're a lot younger than me. And they said, we wear boots, our peers wear boots. We all want to wear very expensive boots, but don't think we should have to pay that kind of uh, a penalty for those. So I said, okay, what do you guys know about boots? And the answer was nothing. Well, is there anybody in your family or in your circle of friends and family that's in the footwear business, the boot business? And the answer is nope. So I said, so how exactly are you two geniuses going to figure this out? And they said, well, we're going to go to school on the product. And they did. And they worked hard at that. And they got lots of help from lots of people. 
and they started uh, the company with a Kickstarter campaign looking for $30,000 to enable them to avoid starving to death for a couple of months. And the Kickstarter campaign yielded $300,000. And my advice to them was put 270000 of it in a mattress. Because if you spend it, you'll piss it away. And they, they didn't need to be convinced. They did that. Anyway, they founded a company called the Thursday Boot Company. And it has been phenomenally successful almost from day one, literally from day one. They sell men's and women's boots and other footwear. They are now into uh, accessories, some apparel. Um, virtually everything they sell is direct to consumer. They did some business at the outset with uh, Nordstrom and with Amazon, but virtually their entire business model is based on direct to consumer. And what do they have to sell? A wonderfully styled, very high quality product at surprisingly moderate price. No promotion, never on sale. And so they've got a men's boot, you know, a chuck a boot for 199 bucks, which would be five, 600 bucks from a well-known brand. Their quality is at or better than the brand. Um, they're doing business uh, uh, globally. They're making boots in uh, Mexico, US, uh, and I think in Spain. Um, they built an organization from scratch, two guys who were shipping goods out of one of their bedrooms. And now they've got an entire organization in support of the business. And they found a niche that they've been able to uh, move into and defend because the, 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 the footwear businesses that notice them after a while have tried to uh, basically brush them aside, copy them and knock them off, but they've been unable to do it because they can't deliver to the customer a very high quality product at a price point that's competitive with Thursday Boot Company. Uh, so there's, there's tremendous opportunity out there for very smart people who use their heads, who uh, carefully craft their strategy and then follow it, uh, who don't fall in love with themselves like the Allbirds people seem to have and going public and taking on enormous uh, investment support and then blowing all that money because they really didn't know where they were going. Um, so it's a wonderful time if you really have your, uh, your head screwed on in the right way in the right place. That is fascinating stuff. Uh, no, and congratulations to Thursday Boot Company because uh, I'll have to go look them up now and see what the product is like. Um, I had another historical question that's uh, it's not quite off base from what we've been talking about, but uh, uh, one thing that I've noticed, so I've done some research, uh, just given my age, I didn't get to see some of the department stores in the same you know light or understanding I would have now, say in the 1980s, well, barely in 70s because I was a little kid, but uh, one thing that I noticed with the department stores, say in the United States and even in Canada, was that uh, especially in the 80s, there was a good women's designer business. And I'm talking about actual luxury brands where you saw uh, brands coming in. Uh, a Canadian example is, uh, is, is Hudson's Bay in the Mirror Room in 1972 brought in uh, Givenchy, L'Anvin, Pierre Cardin and a few brands. And in the United States and stores like, uh, uh, I'm just thinking, well, I think even Lazarus had a designer business. If you were in That's right. downtown Cincinnati, it was, um, what was it? Uh, what was the big department store there? Uh 
besides Pogues and uh, you mentioned uh, Shilatos and a few others, but they all had designer businesses, but they all seem to go away in the 1990s. Do you have any insight into that? Because it's just something that I've been looking at and curious about. Well, the, the designers you're talking about were looking for a foothold and the department stores were welcoming to them with open arms. The department stores had customers, the department stores had space, the department stores had the wherewithal to provide them with support, uh, to give them a showcase by way of a platform. But then the department stores um, acted in a manner which made it impossible for these brands to make any money doing what they were doing. And so they gravitated to specialty retail. And now we've seen a lot of those businesses go direct or, or go up market into uh, a more rarefied version like uh, Berghoff Goodman, for example, or a whole rent fruit. Um, so, so it made sense for them to use U.S. and Canadian department stores as a launch pad, but it never made sense for them to um, build out their business there because even though the department stores in the day had the better customer, they really didn't have a lot of better customers. And the economic model only was based upon the department store basically uh, requiring that the brand subsidize the entire operation, okay? So it was a PR opportunity for the most part, rather than a volume opportunity for the department store. It served the purpose of these designer brands at the time, but it was not a uh, relationship that was likely to have much of a future, and it hasn't. Uh, yeah, depart yeah uh, the, the uh, store you're thinking about based in Cincinnati was McAlpin's, which had a substantial following for its designer businesses but most of what they sold was sold at discount at the end of the season so there was a lot of hoopty do about the launches and the introductions and then quietly everything got sold off off price uh, which the designer brands were willing to put up with because that was the only game in town but it didn't work for them for very long either when all is said and done um, you know Things come and go. The electric typewriter is an artifact of the past. The, the rotary telephone, the wireline phone. Uh, you know, uh, we live in an ever evolving world and there is no natural reason why something that had been very, very successful has any kind of a future unless there are talented creative individuals who uh, enable it to succeed on a future basis. And uh, I don't see it. I don't see it, sorry, you know, don't see it. And that's not to say that there isn't the possibility of success. I mean, another uh, comment I would make, uh, I don't know if any of your viewers would argue the point, but there's no reason why Sears Canada uh, doesn't exist today and isn't eminently successful because Sears Canada had a wonderfully balanced mix of fashion and utility. It had all of the power of Sears Roebuck by way of appliances, hardware, uh, hard lines product with a an increasingly fashionable assortment that was so, certainly far more appealing than its US shareholder that could go uh, toe to toe certainly with the Bay. 
and never yielded the floor to the bay. With private label products that that were there when I got there, I did everything I could to encourage their uh, their uh, support for the future uh, and their ongoing success. And customers certainly loved the store, the catalog, the website. Um, why did it fail? It failed because of the uh, engagement of, uh, frankly, a handful of avaricious uh, and less than straightforward uh, leaders and owners who saw fit to, uh, who either were incapable of running the business and then who saw fit to just strip it bare and, and uh, uh, basically bulldoze its remains out for scrap. Didn't have to happen didn't happen because the customer rejected the store. It's because the store could not sustain its basis of success. Uh, I don't know what the future will be for the Bay, but uh, I suspect uh, something similar is quite possible. Uh, I want to say thank you so much, Mark Cohen. You're the Director of Retail Studies at Columbia University in New York City, and you were also the CEO of Sears Canada in 2001 to 2004. You're a wealth of knowledge, and I want to say thank you so much for being with us here again today. You bet. Good talking with you. And I'm Craig Patterson. I'm the founder, CEO, and publisher of Retail Insider Media Limited. And I want to say thank you, everyone, for watching this today. If you're watching this on our YouTube channel or if you're listening to this as a podcast, thank you so much, everyone. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform uh, you're seeing this here if you're not already uh, subscribed to us. Thank you again. Take care and bye for now.